Thanks for that, Dan. Uh, there is an uh, order of service, and in the order of service, you'll notice that there is a sermon outline. Uh, it would be great to actually pop that out. It's a Christmas service outline. It's got all the Bible readings in there, uh, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you can feel free to look on to that, and that will be incredibly helpful. Uh, let me wish everyone a Merry Christmas. If you're a visitor to our church this morning, uh, welcome to Grace Point. It's a pleasure to have you uh, join us. Uh, I'm going to pray for us uh, as we look at the Bible uh, and as we actually look at what Christmas actually means for us uh, here at Grace Point. Father, we just want to ask as we come and as we engage with your word, uh, our Father and our God, we do want to ask that you might actually speak not just to our minds but to our hearts. Uh, for those of us who are not familiar with Christmas, we do pray and ask that you might actually reveal to us the one who is at the heart of the story of Christmas. Uh, and so we do pray and ask that we might encounter and meet Jesus uh, this Christmas morning. Amen. Um, Sam is going to put up a slide, and it should pop up. Okay, he's going to keep that up there until I tell him to put it down. But at the Academy of Fine Arts in Venice, uh, hangs one of the largest paintings in the Academia commissioned to replace Titian's Last Supper. It was actually completed in 1573 uh, by an artist called Paolo Veronese. Uh, it's a massive painting, and the reason why, you know, initially I was just going to put the painting up, but you wouldn't get a sense of how large it was. It's actually larger than uh, the backing to uh, the stage over here, because you can actually see how small those people are. Uh, it was completed in 1573, and three months after it was completed, Paolo Veronese was summoned to St. Mark's Basilica, uh, because... As the painting went up, after a while, people noticed certain things about this picture of the Last Supper, uh, because he got into trouble with the Spanish inquisitors, the religious police of the day. Uh, so Veronese uh, was brought before them uh, because the Spanish inquisitors were offended, because Jesus wasn't just having a meal with his disciples. Uh, as you look at that picture up there, he was also surrounded by armed Roman soldiers having fun in the corner, drinking. Uh, a man with a bloody nose, drunks, dwarves, people of color, stray dogs running around. And so he was hauled before the Spanish Inquisitors because it was offensive. Uh, they felt it was disrespectful. And so Veronese defended his painting because he said these were the kinds of people Jesus mingled with, if you knew your Bible. Uh, and so, but the Spanish Inquisitors, they said to him, change the painting. Uh, and so this is what he did. Uh, he did change the painting. He changed the title of the painting from the Lord's Supper to Feast at the House of Levi. Okay? This is the upside-down world of Jesus. It's the upside-down world of the Bible, really, because it's a picture of Jesus with real people as opposed to good people. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus with weak people as opposed to strong people. It's a picture of Jesus with broken people as opposed to perfect people. And it's surprising because when you read the story of Jesus in Matthew's account, which you actually have in your outlines over there, his story begins as a story of the birth of a king. Okay? So the carols we sing, the carols we hear, uh, sung at the domain each year last night, <clears throat> if you were... Uh, watching, and then the you know the people storm the stage. Um, it, it's the carols declare a truth that most people miss. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of a king. Uh, have a look at verse seventeen, verse eighteen uh, in the outline. We're introduced to Jesus's. I said this yesterday. We're introduced to Jesus's ancestry.com. Uh, he comes. We read as the son of David, 
Israel's greatest king. And right at the end, uh, verse 17, verse 18, we told he comes as Messiah, Christ. That's the first Bible reading, right? He comes as the Messiah, the Christ. Christ is God's king. But in the upside-down world of Jesus, his rule or his kingship is marked by a shepherd heart. And so he's a king who will be shepherd over his people, Israel, a ruler who will shepherd his people. And so his nobility is actually marked by compassion and mercy, uh, a shepherd to real people as opposed to good people, uh, a shepherd to weak people as opposed to strong people. And so what I want to do with you this Christmas is I want to explore uh, with you what, it, what that actually means for us, for Jesus to come as king, but Jesus to come as shepherd. We sang that uh, in our carol, the first one we sang today, uh, he comes as king to rule, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, you know the words. Uh, so he commands worship because he comes as nobility. But then the Bible tells us he also comes as a shepherd. He comes to rule, yes, he comes to rule, but he comes to comfort. Uh, he comes to direct our lives, but he also comes to carry us. He comes to lead us, but he also comes to walk with us. Now, there's, if, if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is the account of the life of Jesus... One of the things is when you look at the life of Jesus, two things become very, very clear. We see a rule that's incredibly powerful, but a rule also marked by compassion. Okay? Those are the two things you see in the life of Jesus, uh, the story of a king. Uh, and so in Matthew's account of Jesus, and I do want to encourage you to read that over the Christmas season, but in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, from chapter 7, we see uh, a glimpse of the king's power and the king's rule. Uh, he, is, he has power over those living in isolation. Uh, and so because of their physical condition, they're rejected, they're isolated, they're ignored. A man suffering lep leprosy, and Jesus demonstrates his rule by healing him. He goes from outsider to insider. Uh, we see Jesus demonstrating his rule over the unseen world. He commands the spiritual world. He speaks, and the demon release their hold. Uh, he frees the powerless and those enslaved to sickness and disease. The paralytic who cannot move now walks. He brings hope to those who have no hope. He demonstrates his power in the face of a daughter who has just died. And he gives her back to her parents. What could leave you in absolute despair more than death? He comforts and frees those living in utter despair. Power and authority over a woman uh, who has been suffering for 12 years. He brings light to those living in darkness and silence. The blind and the mute, they see and they hear. They're no longer in the darkness of silence. He releases them from the prison of loneliness. And so one of the things you're meant to see from Mark chapter 7 in the life of Jesus is there is no realm he does not command. There is no sphere of life he does not rule over as king. It's a picture uh, of a king exercising his rule. He comes as king, the Christ. And so what's actually happening at Christmas is we're meant to see in the story of Jesus, heaven colliding with earth. The rule of heaven has come down. And the rule of heaven comes to actually confront brokenness and darkness in our lives and our broken world. Uh, he's exercising power and authority over the realm of darkness. He is repairing, reversing, and restoring brokenness in people's lives and in the world in which we live. But... When you look at the life of Jesus, the rule of the king is also marked by a shepherd's heart. 
compassion and mercy. And so, you know, from chapter 7, you get to chapter 9. And when you get to chapter 9, uh, this is how Jesus is actually described. Uh, it's there in your Bible reading, I suspect. Uh, sorry, it's there in your uh, uh, sermon outline. Uh, you'll see it there. Actually, it's not there, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you an account of that. Um, actually, no, it is there. Ma- Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to verse 36. So have a look with me. Uh, King with a shepherd's heart. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the goodness of the kingdom, healing every sickness and disease. So you see the king at work. But then notice verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see there? Two words used to describe the crowds. Harassed and helpless. Uh, the idea there is that they are mangled and they are cast down. They're walking with difficulty and they are on the road to misery. Now, why are they uh, harassed and helpless? Well, that, that's because they haven't got a shepherd. They have no one to carry them. They have no one to walk with them. There's no one to comfort them. And so it's interesting, you know, when Jesus sees the crowds, his eyes gravitate towards the weak, the broken, right? That's what happens, right? He, his eyes gravitates towards the forgotten, those living without hope, the suffering. He saw them and his heart goes out to them. And, and notice when Jesus surveys a crowd, he does not gravitate towards the attractive, the strong, the impressive, the smart, the fast. No. Notice that? He gravitates towards the weak and the helpless. They are always the focus of his heart. Now, I want to say to you that most of us, you know, we, we tend to think of Jesus, you know, um, uh, loving the weak and the strong. But if you think with me, uh, that's incredibly radical because it's incredibly different to the way the world works and the way kings operate. Kings do not operate like that in the ancient world and kings do not operate like that today. The powerful in our world only have eyes for those who are strong. Those who are capable, those who are valuable, those who have something to offer them. Uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, the ancient book of Daniel uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in Daniel chapter 1, uh, we read of how only those who come from royalty and nobility, those who have no uh, physical defect, those who are handsome, we read, showing aptitude, who are smart, quick to learn, well-informed, quick to understand, we read that only they are qualified and selected to enter the king's presence. They, only they are invited to serve in the king's presence. A-listers, the politically powerful, those who command wealth, they never surround themselves uh, with people who are socially weak or powerless. Have you noticed that? Have you ever seen a photo of Elon Musk socially spending time with people who are nobodies? And if you did, you know, often the newspaper will, rep- will report something that says, Elon Musk with unknown person at lunch. Unknown person at lunch. Have you ever seen Taylor Swift uh, r- hanging out with regular people? And again, if you did, you know, the papers would actually read, Tay-Tay shopping with unknown persons. Okay? In fact, in the ancient world of kings, the king does not come to you. You c- come to them, and you are given access to them only if you are worthy. That's the principle of greatness operating. Uh, That's how the principle of greatness operates in our world. Think with me for a moment, you know, uh, when I I suspect at some point, uh, you know, Tay-Tay will come to Sydney, you know, her concert will be at Olympic Park. 
I'll get to hear her, not because I can attend the concert, because I live in Olympic Park, I'll hear her from my background live for free, uh, because every time they play at Olympic Park, we get to hear the music. But what happens when, when she comes to Sydney? You pay to see her. And the more you pay, the greater your access. That's how it works. The closer you get to her, the more you pay. Not everyone gets to greet and meet. You need to earn your way to experience her presence and her greatness. It's not just true in the world of kings. Not just true of the powerful and the rich. It's also true in the world of sport. A sporting scout only has eyes for the fastest and the strongest. In the academic world, our universities only have eyes for the brightest. Those who make the grade. In the social world, especially at school, right? Uh, even, even in the workplace, you have social groups that you can only belong to if you meet their expectations. If you dress a certain way, if you have a certain look, if you have social standing. In the world of the social elite, only the beautiful, the influencer, the A-lister is included. Now, that's how the secular wor world works. It's the same in the ancient world. Religion also works the same way. Have you noticed how religion actually works? You have to be good enough, moral enough, worthy enough to warrant acceptance, to warrant inclusion, to be given forgiveness. Now, I want to say to you, Christianity is very different because the king has eyes for the harassed and the helpless, the weak, the, power, the powerless, the ignored, the voiceless. It's radically different. The great myth about Christianity is that it's for good people, people who somehow have got their act together, who are morally better than others, um, you must earn your way when it comes to God. That's the great myth about Christianity. The great myth about Christianity, and often people think like that, especially at Christmas, is that God is like Santa. Uh, you know, Santa's got a list of who's naughty and nice. Uh, he comes for those who are good. You know, like, like that song you hear, you know, Aaron mentioned it. Every year, Michael Bublé sings the same song every Christmas. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa's coming to town. And so some people in their minds at Christmas, they think God is like Santa. He comes from nice people, good people, the, beautifully, the beautiful, the morally strong, those who've got their lives together. Well, no. God comes for those on the naughty list. He comes to gift those on the naughty list. That's the great myth about Christianity that Jesus debunks. That's what God Paolo Veronese into trouble with the religious authorities of the day because his painting was debunking the myth that Jesus comes for the good, the beautiful, those who've got their lives together. No, Jesus actually comes to be with real people as opposed to good people, weak people as opposed to strong people, right? Broken people as opposed to perfect people. So it's no surprise that the account of the birth of Jesus doesn't just announce the birth of a king. And here's our next point but a king who comes to save. He comes as shepherd to comfort the trouble, to heal the lost, to, to carry the weak, but ultimately he comes to save. And that's why we, we read right at the start at his birth that this king comes not just to rule, he comes to save. Have a look at there in your outline, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, 21. We read uh, of the birth of Jesus. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's named Jesus. His, his name actually means God saves. He is God's rescuer. And so, verse 17, his ancestry.com tells us that he is the Christ, God's king. It's his title. Then verse 21, we hear that his name is Jesus, God's rescuer. 
That tells you who he is, the Christ, God's king, but his name tells you what he's come to do. Now, in all cultures, names have meanings. So all of you got names. Your names have meanings. You might not know uh, the, the meaning of your name. Go, go Google it. Right? I think of Terence, right? Where's Terence? Is he here? I don't know where he's. Oh, there he is. Yeah. See, Terence, every time I think of Terence, he's one of the smoothest guys here at Grace Point. And you know what? When I Google Terence, you know what his name means? Smooth. <laughs> oh, amazing, right? Uh, Jasmine, her name means God's gift. And Sam Lai, who's married to her, he definitely thinks that, right? Jason means healer, right? In his presence, you feel comforted and healed. Uh, and, and in some cultures, you know, your last name in some cultures was a reflection of your family profession. And so you're a brewer, you're a potter, you're a fisher, you're a tanner, you're a bowman, okay? Now here we're told that the child born at Christmas, his name is Jesus Christ, the king who has come to rescue, God's rescuer king. Uh, that's what we're told. He's come as a shepherd to save his people from their sins. Now, the majority of people do not believe they need saving from their sins. Why? Because most people actually think they're good enough for God. That's how the majority of people think. Uh, and, and for many people, the idea that as modern people, we're sinners, sounds absurd and archaic. Because we think we're not that bad, right? We think you know, the word sinner is a very archaic word. Yet, if we pressed a bit deeper... If we pressed a bit deeper, have you ever realized that whether you are a religious person or you're not a religious person, in your life, for all of us, there's this nagging sense of not enoughness in our lives. Whether you're Christian or not, right? There's always this sense of never arriving, of always falling short of the ideal in life. You feel it, I feel it. We feel that we're never smart enough, we're never rich enough, we're never beautiful enough, we're never popular enough, we're never healthy enough, we're never quite the ideal dad or mom or husband or wife. We're simply never good enough. So uh, everyone in life feels this, this, sense of, this sense of not enoughness in their lives. We're simply never good enough. And if we're not quite there, and we always fall short in life, it's no surprise that we would fall short when it comes to God. That's not a surprise. We will never be good enough. Now, the harsh reality is that even if you didn't believe in sin or right or wrong, it's unlikely that you'd honestly believe your life was guilt-free. One author writes um, that sin is the unavoidable human tendency to F things up. Do you know that? Sin is the unavoidable ten human tendency to F things up. And we do it all the time. You do it, I do it. So Christian or not, religious or not, imagine for a moment with me, right? All of you got your mobile phones, right? You got your mobile phones. Imagine that your mobile phone was recording all your thoughts, all your words, all your motivations. The seen and the unseen. The heard and the unheard. And imagine that is being played back every hour for everyone to hear, okay? Now, whether you're a Christian person or you're not a Christian person, no one wants that in their lives because there's always stuff that we will always be ashamed of, stuff that causes us guilt, stuff we fail to do. See, most people don't think they need saving because, because they think they're good enough. 
But if we press just a bit deeper, you, you begin to realize that we fall short. And we're always guilty of things that we're ashamed of in our lives. Now, it's really, really interesting because Jesus actually had a conversation with a guy who actually thought he was good enough for God. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, as the story of Jesus unfolds, Jesus has a conversation with a successful uh, and confident young man who believed he was good enough, good enough for God. And so this young man, he comes to Jesus and he actually says, good teacher, what must I do to secure my eternal future? What must I do to earn God's approval? What good must I do? And Jesus says, there's only one who's truly good. That's God. And then he says to this young man, look, uh, if you want God's approval, keep the commandments. And the young man says, which ones? Here we go. Jesus lists them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your parents. Love your neighbors yourself. And this young man, he, he looks at that list and he goes, you know what? I've done that. I'm good enough. I've kept the commandments. Good enough for Santa. Good enough for God. What else do I need to do? And here's when Jesus challenges him, because Jesus then says, I know you love your neighbor, I know you don't murder people, but here's the question, do you love God more than your possessions, your wealth, your financial security? If you did, give up your wealth, follow him. And in that account, the young man simply couldn't do that. His heart sank, we read, he became really sad, because at that point he realized he loved his wealth more than God's. And so you begin to realize that he loves something else more than he loved God. So in other words, he fell short when it came to God's place in his life. He fell short, right? And Jesus says, no one is good because everyone falls short when it comes to loving God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everyone fails to love God absolutely above other things in their lives. And so we all fall short when it comes to God. An illustration I've used here before at Grace Point is something like this because often people think they can be good enough for God, and I say, meeting God's standard is like attempting to swim across the Pacific Ocean from Sydney to the west coast of America. Okay, do you know the distance, the Pacific Ocean? It's 8,851 kilometer. And so people will do all sorts of things, right? They try to swim the English Channel. Yeah, that's possible. But you know what? No one has actually attempted to swim the Pacific Ocean. And no one, has even, no one actually will even make the halfway mark. So I look around in this room, right? There's some pretty athletic guys here. So those of us who are not very athletic, we won't get very far, maybe 100 meters, and then we'll sink. Some will, well, you know, those of you who've done triathlons in this room, I think uh, Elia has done this crazy triathlon type stuff. Elia's always doing this stuff. She'll probably make five kilometers open ocean swim, okay? Now, the really, really strong swimmers, maybe you'll make 10, Someone like uh, Benoit Lacombe, he swam 5,954 kilometers across the Atlantic. Took him 73 days, unaided. And then he gave up. But no one will last the distance when it comes to the Pacific. Everyone will fall short. Now, life is actually like that, right? We all fall short when it comes to God. Some of us, you know, God has a, you know, we, we love God a little bit, some more than others. But no one loves God completely, absolutely. That's why Jesus says no one is good. Do you, know why, do, you, do you know why no one will ever see Santa at Christmas? It's because there's no one in the world who's absolutely good. There's actually no one on Santa's good list. Everyone's on the naughty list. Right? Because remember, Santa only brings presents to kids who are good, to homes where there are good people. Jesus says there's only one person that's good, God. 
And Jesus tells us none of us are good because none of us loves God completely. And so no one's going to see Santa because he's still out there and he's waiting and he's looking for good people. You know, so, you know, some people say Santa is a myth. He doesn't exist. But I want to say to you this morning, good people are actually also a myth. Have you ever realized that? Good people are a myth. They don't exist. That's not to say you and I don't do good things. We do. And we should keep doing them. But Jesus says that even the best of us fail. We fall short. So good people don't exist. And so the bad news at Christmas, and I'm sorry if you've got children here, the bad news at Christmas is that no one's going to see Santa and Santa's not coming. And the bad news at Christmas is that none of them actually deserve presents or gifts because no one is good according to Jesus. Some people don't believe, some people believe they don't need saving because they're good enough. And Jesus says simply, there's no one good enough. But then I suspect there's always people in the room who know that they need saving from their sins. They aren't good enough. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make up for their sin. They're trying to pay for their past by trying to be better. They're trying to live their lives so that, you know, uh, to, to, to make up for guilt or, or something they've done wrong in the past. They try to earn God's favor. You ever felt like that? And sometimes at Christmas, people do that. Oh, Christmas is a fresh start. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make up for, for the, the year gone past. I'm going to clean up my life. You ever felt like that? You need to get your act together before God will accept you. You need to make things right before God will show you favor. You need to, you, you need to start climbing before God will love you again. Well, here's the good news, isn't it? Santa isn't coming for you. But you won't see Santa. But at Christmas, you're meant to see Jesus. Santa comes for those who are good. Jesus comes for those who are not good. The harassed, the helpless, the lost, the despairing. He comes as shepherd. Not just a comforters in our brokenness. He comes to save us from the very sins that condemn us. From our guilt, our shame, our past. And that's why you read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 and 21, He is Jesus Christ, the King who comes to rescue us from our sin. Santa says, if you're good, I'll come. If you're good, you'll find presents under the Christmas tree. Jesus says, I've come for those of you who are not good. I've come for those of you who have fallen short when it comes to God and life. Uh, I've come for those of you who've had messed up lives. I've come to deal with your sin. I've come to save. You see, in the upside-down world of Jesus, God always has a preference for real people over good people, weak people over strong people. And how does he actually do that? And the reason why Jesus is able to save is because at the cross, he paid for my guilt. He paid for my shame. He paid for my stuff-ups in life. He paid for my falling short, my judgment. Uh, you know, kings come to be served, but this shepherd king comes to serve. And we read Matthew 20, verse 28. He says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the shepherd king doesn't just ignore the fact that I've fallen short in life. He doesn't say uh, to those of us racked with guilt, work to make up for your sin. Work harder to be good. He says, let me worry about your guilt. Let me worry about your past failures. And I'm going to carry it all at the cross. Let me serve you. Hand it over to me. Rather than it crushing you, let it crush me. Uh, uh, in, instead of you feeling judged, judge, let me 
be judged in your place. And that's why Jesus dies. Everything that is repulsive for me, everything that condemns me, everything that causes me guilt, everything that condemns me, Jesus takes on himself and is crushed in my place at the cross. So that you and I might hear the words, forgiven, accepted, included, welcome, it's done. And that means if Jesus has come as a shepherd to save me from my sins, that means there is nothing in my life that will ever drive him away from me. He can't love me any more or less because he's loved me completely at my worst at the cross. That's the good news at Christmas. Uh, In Mozart's Requiem, which I've mentioned here before, there's one last line in his song uh, that reminds us of our worth and value at our worst. And the line goes, Remember, merciful Jesus, that I'm the cause of your journey. He was born to die for you. He was born to save you. Remember, merciful Jesus, that I am the cause of your journey. And so... Friends, church, I want you to know this Christmas day, because Jesus, your shepherd king, has loved you completely at your worst when he died for you. He cannot love you any more or less. And you and I are called to trust him, to take our refuge in him, to find our rest in him. Which is why, you know, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, verse 29 was read, because you find that Jesus extends his invitation to all. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not just rest from your sins, but rest from everything else in life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You can always find rest because he's dealt and he's loved you at your worst. You know, the Christmas season is a very busy season, isn't it? Most of you probably got plans after church. Um, Studies have shown that it's one of the most stressful times of the year, the Christmas season, and it's not meant to be. Uh, it's stressful for those who are struggling financially before and after Christmas because debt increases. It's stressful for those without family. It's one of the loneliest times of the year. Things are more rushed and hectic. Uh, the Christmas season is a burden for many people. But even if you don't feel the burden of the Christmas season, maybe you have other burdens in life, which is why you're here on Christmas Day, right? Because for some people, um, there's only two times in the year they'll visit church, Christmas and Easter. And I meet people with burdens all across our church community. Some people live with the burden of trying to find significance in their work, and it hasn't panned out in the year. Uh, The burden of living to fulfill their parents' expectations, the burden of study, the burden of loneliness, the burden of depression, the burden of longing for a relationship, the burden of feeling valued and loved, the burden of disappointment, the burden of caring for someone in need who is sick in your family, the burden of personal illness the burden of raising your kids, or maybe even the burden of personal guilt and failure and sin in life. You know, so you come to church this Christmas morning, and if I pressed a bit deeper, I suspect that many of us here do carry burdens, even in the Christmas season. Can I say to you, the good news is that the shepherd, king, and savior has come in Jesus, not just to save us from our sin, but to shepherd us, to lift all our burdens, and to give us rest. And he can do that because he's loved you completely at the cross where he died to save you. Because he's carried your greatest burden in life. Surely he can carry whatever burden you're carrying right now. It doesn't mean that those burdens will go away, but he says his burden is light and you will find rest 
for your souls. Finding rest, not just from your guilt and failure and shame, but finding rest from all your burdens in life. Uh, A couple of years ago, I shared the story of Calvin Miller in his book. uh, And he writes, his book, Jesus Loves Me, he writes that being found or owned or belonging is a way of life. Being found and being lost are categories of existence, like um, health and sickness. You're either healthy or you're sick. If you are one, you cannot be the other. And then he says, I knew that lostness was nothing more than my ego, my pride, my attempts at living life, forging into the woods without God. A way of self-salvation. I want to do it my way. I can do it my way. I can carry my burden, my guilt, my failure. I can fix things myself. But then he says, foundness, belonging, being owned, right? Foundness, he says, is the path to significance. Living life, walking with Jesus every day, the shepherd who died for you, who comforts you, who carries you, and who leads you. And so at Christmas, we celebrate more than just the coming of a king. We celebrate the coming of a shepherd who has come to give us rest. That's why the weary world rejoices. Rest from the burden of our sin and guilt and rest from all our burdens in life. Friends, you can find rest knowing that because he loved you completely at the cross, where he died for you, he continues to love you, and he can give you rest today, whatever your burden in life. Now, maybe for the first time this Christmas, you've realized Christmas isn't about being good. Christmas isn't for the deserving. Christmas celebrates the good, the good news of a king who's come to save. He's come for the broken, the weak. He's come as a shepherd who are those who are not good. Maybe you've realized that for the first time this Christmas. Or maybe you've realized that you need rest from trying to make up and pay for your past sins, your guilt and shame. And Christmas today means Jesus has come to give you rest from your past, from your guilt and shame. And that's why he came. Maybe for you, for the first time, you realize that's good news. Or maybe you realize for the first time that there is someone who is able to carry your burdens in life from the year gone past as you start a new year. Maybe you realize that because he's died for you at your worst, he's able to carry all your burdens in life today. Maybe that's you. And the way you receive the good news is very, very simple. The way you come under the rule of the king is very, very simple. All you have to do is act. A, C, and T. Act. A, acknowledge that we're not good and we need saving. C, confess that we have lived our lives ignoring God, that we fall short, that we need him. T, trust that he is able to save. Trust him as your king and savior. Trust his death for you. Trust his rule in your life. That's how you receive any gift, by the way. You don't deserve it. You just accept it. You don't try to earn it. You don't try to pay for it. You receive it. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you in a moment. Chong is going to lead us in a time of uh, reflection as we confess our sin. Uh, And there's a prayer. It's not the prayer in your outline, but it's actually the prayer in your order of services. There's a prayer there, a prayer of confession. And that might be a prayer that's appropriate for you. It goes something like this. God of grace and truth, in Jesus Christ you came among us as light shining in the darkness.
we confess that we have not welcomed the light or trusted the good news to be good. We have closed our eyes to glory in our midst, expecting little and hoping for less. Forgive our doubts and renew our hope so that we may receive the fullness of your grace and live in the truth of Christ the Lord. Now that prayer may be right for you. I'm going to invite us as a church to spend some time in private confession, and then Chong will lead us in the prayer of confession.